Well, Hebrews chapter 1 is our reading. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1. God, who at sundry times and divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And that's our reading. One thing you notice when you begin to read in the book of Hebrews is the fact that there is no author mentioned. So we're not sure who wrote the book. The author's name is omitted from the text. And the one thing to say about that is that due to its omission, it's not important or it would have been put in. Some people speculate. They think, I read that some folks think that Barnabas or Apollos or Luke or even Paul wrote this. And actually, we don't know. But what we do know is that this book came out of the early apostolic community and as such was regarded as authoritative and apostolic and part of the canon of scripture in due course when the canon of scripture was completed. And so the church accepted this book. And although we don't know the author of the book, we do know what the book is about and we do know that ultimately the authorship is God and the book is about God because it starts off in that way in chapter 1 and verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, the people that received this book, so we're not sure who wrote it, but we have a fair idea of the character of the people who received it. And most scholars agree that it was second generation Jewish believers or believers from a Jewish background who received this. And so it's full of Old Testament quotations. And as you read through it, it does presuppose a knowledge of the Old Testament part of the Bible. And so when you read through this, you are being referred back constantly to the Old Testament, to sacrificial systems, to some of the details of the Old Testament. And it's good to have at least a familiarity with those things when you come to this book. If you have a familiarity with those things, then when you come to this book, you will see that they are taken up. And the overarching theme of the whole book is that what Christians have in Christ is superior to everything of the Old Testament and what people had under Judaism. That's the overarching theme. And so it's been written to people who, as Christians, with that Jewish background, had begun well and had also suffered tremendous persecution as a consequence of their faith. For example, I'll quote you Hebrews 10 and verse 32 down to verse 34. The writer says, Call to remembrance the former days, in which after you were illuminated, after you were saved, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that in heaven you have a better and an enduring substance. 
So he's reminding them that in their early days as Christians, they had suffered terribly for the sake of Christ. They had known the vandalization of their possessions and the theft of those things. They'd known physical persecution and they had been willing to endure all of that and be made a fool of and had reproaches and afflictions for the name of Christ. But what happened was this, that as the trials had continued, then their progress in Christian things had stalled and begun to slip back and they began to hark back they began to think back to their culture their heritage that which they perhaps had been raised within the Judaistic system and there was an appeal to them in those things they were being drawn back toward those things and being tempted to revert to all of the things that Judaism gave them that Christianity doesn't. All of the external things, the things that appeal to the senses, the things of touch and taste and, and smell and sight, and the idea of those uh, buildings and the procedures within them and all of that kind of business that was under Judaism. And they had left all of that behind and they'd come out of that towards Christ and received him and him alone. And now they have been tempted to kind of doubt and question the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and as opposed to all these things under Judaism. So you come to this book and that's the kind of idea. In fact, the author refers to this letter as a word of exhortation in chapter 13 and verse 22. So he's appealing to people, he's urging these people not to go back, not to stray away from Christ, not to seek satisfaction and sufficiency in those things of Judaism that had been replaced and superseded in Christ, but rather to find their satisfaction in Christ and to be amazed at him and to be satisfied in him and to be taken up with him and to learn of him. And so... The Holy Epistle is directing the attention of the readers to Christ. And when we come to that without the Jewish background that they had, we still have that word of ministry that's pertinent to us. We can slip back to other things that may not be Judaism and be kind of undermining and thinking less of Christ than we ought to and not taking up with the sufficiency of him and not learning of him in all his fullness. So there are warning sections in the epistle that kind of um, they appear from time to time there are five major warning sessions one in chapter two uh, the first three verses actually therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip and there's a warning brought to bear at the beginning of chapter two and then over in chapter 13 in verse number 12 take heed brethren there's the warning, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. So there's a warning section in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. There's a warning section in chapter 3, verse 12 to verse number 9. And if you go over to chapter 6, you find that again, this reoccurs, the idea of warning. And he says, verse 4 down to verse 8, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. He warns them in that chapter about this idea of slipping back. And then there's two more, one in chapter 10 and one in chapter 12. So the sufficiency of Christ is the big idea for those who were tempted to slip back to a Jewish background. Now, 
I'm going to give you an outline of the book, which you'll probably forget. But here's the structure of the book, because structure's important when you come to study. So we learn, first of all, in the first four chapters, and we'll see this as we go through our study, the, the structure, we'll work our way through the structure. So the structure is going to be part and parcel of every time we come to the study. But the structure is that in the first four chapters, we discover that the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to everything and everyone, and it's his person that makes him superior who he is in himself. So he himself is superior, number one, to the prophets, number two, to the angels, number three, to Moses, and number four, to Joshua. That's the first four chapters. So he himself is superior in his person to the great characters of the Old Testament, even the angels, to the prophets, to Moses, to Joshua, then you come to chapter 5 through to chapter 10 and you discover that he's superior in his priesthood. So in his person, the first four chapters, in his priesthood, chapters 5 through to verse chapters 10. And in that way, you discover he's superior to Aaron and his priesthood, chapter 5 to chapter 7, and then he's superior to the old covenant from chapter 8 through to chapter 10. Then you come to the third and last section, where Christ's superiority ought to stimulate us to enduring faith in the face of lots of trials. So you've got Christ in his person, he's superior. You've got Christ in his priesthood, he's superior. And then that ought to stimulate us to endurance and to faith as Christians in the midst of trials. And he puts four sections in there that we'll come to in due course. So let's go back to chapter uh, 1 and let's deal with this um, down God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So here's the introduction to the whole book in these first few verses. And the superiority of Christ is stated here in these first few verses. And the book begins a wee bit in our English text like... John's Gospel, and it begins a bit like Genesis as well, with no explanation, no rationalization, just God. That's where he starts, God. Now that's how it starts in the English. He actually writes a long sentence which takes four verses in the Greek. It's like a, it's like a, a manic David Neal punctuated sentence that can go on and on and on and on and on and on and be accurate. Um, and have lots of semicolons and colons and all, all sorts of things in there. Well, that's what it's like here in the original language of the Bible. It's a big, long sentence. So he's got something to say here, and it's all going to come out, and it's about God. Now, what we learn in verse number one is that he's referring to the fact that God spoke. So God, miss out the next section, who at sundry times and in divers manners, because that qualifies this word, speak. So you could take that section out and it still makes sense. God spoke. Now we're going to learn when and how in that expression that I've just taken out, but the important statement is this, God spoke. That's what he wants us to know. And God chose language as his primary method of communication to mankind. Right, so it doesn't say, and I know I've said this before, and I know it's 
almost silly to say, but it's basic. God doesn't paint pictures to communicate to us. God speaks in sentences. He uses language. He has chosen to speak. Now, even what he's done in creation is spoken of in the Bible in terms of language, in terms of communication. It tells us that that should speak unto us, but words and sentences uh, are God's methods of communication. So we can only understand what God has for us and wants to communicate to us if we understand his language. Otherwise, we'll never know what God is to communicate to us about himself, about us, and about life. So that involves engaging with his language. And his language is found in the Bible. It's found in a book. Now, that's not being patronising, but if you think about that, that means that in order to gain an understanding of God, we need to listen to what he said. We need to read the words that are in the Bible and understand them in their context, in the language that they were given. Not in some language that we make up. Not in some kind of abuse of language by taking things completely out of context and making words mean anything that we want them to mean. So we could be taking a phrase out of any piece of literature and making it mean whatever we want it to mean. That's not language. That's not the communication of truth in the language in which God has given it. So we need to understand the language. And it's interesting that when it says this, that God spake, that that in the Greek has a particular tense. It's one of the aorist tenses, which just means this, that in context it indicates that this happened in the past. And it's happened. So God spoke. It's interesting, by the way, when it refers to God speaking by prophets and then when it refers to God speaking by his son, both are in the same tense, indicating that both are past. Both have happened. So these are things that we're referring back to. And God has spoken and he's finished speaking. That's the point. He has said what he wants to say. And he began to say it in the prophets and he completely said it in his son. So this is not a continual um, revelation of that which has been partial and continues to be partial or that which has been unfolded and continues to be unfolded. It is that which the prophets delivered and it's that which which Christ also delivered. So God spoke. Now it then qualifies that in our language by saying who at sundry times and in divers manners. Now, most of you likely have a different translation, I think, than maybe the one I've just read from. Um, and Kenneth Woost's expanded translation, which I recommend as a fantastic resource for Bible study because it expands out the English language with the meaning that lies within the Greek. It's very helpful. And he puts it this way, that God in many parts and in different ways... Now, in terms of sentence construction, it's interesting that that phrase in the Greek actually commences the sentence. It's emphatic. It's emphasizing this. So he's not combating, according to Bruce, the denial of a revelation, but he's preparing the reader for the truth that God has now, after all of those preliminary revelations, given a final word of revelation in his own son. This is the idea. 
So it's emphatic that the revelation through the prophets was characterized by this. It happened in different places and in different ways. That is how God communicated in the past. So in the past, God's revelation was incremental. It was progressive, i.e. he spoke in the book of Genesis, but the Genesis wasn't the whole story. That's why you've got Exodus. And mind you, if you're doing your daily reading, some of us here are being held accountable in our daily readings, if you're doing your daily reading and if you chose to read through the Bible, not historically, chronologically, but as they appear in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then you know this, that when you finish, finish Genesis, you don't know have the whole story. God's got so much more to say to you. So where do you find it? Well, you've got to start in Exodus. Because God's revelation was incremental. But there's no point starting in Exodus and missing Genesis. Because then you miss the beginning. Because it's incremental. It's progressive revelation. So God has been revealing things. And and we can't just take one book out of the Bible and say, listen, there it is. We'll learn everything we need to know from that one book. The knowledge that we gain from the Bible builds God reveals and then he revealed a bit more and then he revealed a bit more fragmentary, piece by piece, 39 Old Testament books. It took 40 plus writers and it took 1,500 years or so. A.W. Pink, Jeremy likes a pink quotation. A.W. Pink says this, the Old Testament revelation was but the refracted rays, not the light unbroken and complete. As illustrations of this, we may refer to the gradual making known of the divine character through his different titles, or to the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. It was here a little and there a little. So you learn, and we're going through a study of the Jehovah titles here at Hope Hall on a Sunday morning, and we have thought of a few, but there are, there are many more. So when we think about the name Jehovah, that's not enough, because God's got more to say about himself. So we thought about Jehovah Jireh, but then God's got more to say. So you go from Genesis 22 and you're into Exodus chapter 15, Jehovah Rafika, and there's another title. It's progressive. We're building our knowledge. God's revealing more things and then more things. And this was the way it was right throughout the Old Testament. And he did it not only in that sense in different times, but he did it in different ways. Here are some of the ways in which God spoke in the Old Testament. Through visions and dreams. Remember Daniel. He delivered messages through angels. Sometimes. Remember that he spoke in audible voices himself directly. Sometimes in a still small voice and sometimes in the whirlwind. He actually also, in his, with his hand, well, not literally his hand, because God is spirit, but nonetheless, there was a hand writing on the wall. God spoke with a hand writing on the wall. He appeared in a burning bush and a voice came out of the bush. He inspired songs to be written, the whole book of Psalms. He even put words into the mouth of a donkey. That's not an abusive term, but someone that you don't like. That's actually a donkey spoke. And those were words put into the mouth of that donkey. When you look at verse 1, 
This happened across a long period of time and in a variety of ways. This is how God spoke in the past. And who did he speak to? The prophets were the mouthpieces of God. Their words came from the Holy Spirit. We know that because Peter tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we know the Holy Spirit was involved in all of this, no matter when or how. By the prophets, the writer says here, he spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, which, by the way, literally should be rendered in the prophets, not by the prophets. You see, the writers of the Old Testament constituted the sphere in which God's revelation was made. That group, he spoke exclusively through them. He didn't speak to random people, but those who were prophets of God and so far as the written revelation that we have, they came from prophets of God. And the definite article appears before that, which means the prophets. And it sets out these people as a definite, distinct group through whom God spoke. And in that group, the revelation of God was known. Now in verse 2, he contrasts that with the present day in which the letter was written. So Calvary has happened. The gospel has gone forth. People have been saved. The church is now being established and spreading. And the writer says that he hath, who has? Well, if you look at it, and again, because it's a study, just take your eye into the text and it is self-evident who is being referred to here. So God starts it off. There you've got the expression sundry times in diverse manners, different times and in different ways, God spoke. He spoke when? In times past. Unto who? The fathers. By whom or in whom? The prophets. There's the structure of the verse. Now the same person, God, Hath in these last days, remember this is one continuous sentence. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So now we're in these last days. Now the amplified version of the Bible, which is helpful as well, says, but in the last of these days. The last of these days. So at the very end of the times in which God speaks. Because these are the days where God speaks. That dominates the verse. And in the days when God speaking, is speaking to man, he's now in the last of these days when he's got something to say to man. He speaks not now by prophets, but in the last of these days, he speaks in his son. So here is the culmination of God's revelation as he speaks to mankind. It's in Christ. He speaks in his son. So the story of divine revelation throughout history is a story of progressive revelation up to Christ and there is no progressive revelation beyond Christ. None whatsoever. So he speaks by his son. Now you don't go to many meetings and listen to the book of Hebrews being preached or whatever until you have pointed out to you that a better translation of this would be he has spoken unto us 
in sun. Sometimes you hear people say that in prayer in a kind of in-house way that they know, and maybe folk are sitting there and say, why, why did he miss out by his, and he's just said, and he's made a mistake. He's not made a mistake, he's just kind of shown off a bit. <laughs> so he has spoken in sun. Why would you translate it that way? Because I mentioned the definite article, i.e. the, before the prophets, which makes them a distinct group of people, the prophets. But here it is absent before the word son. Now, when the definite article is absent before a word like son, it emphasizes character or nature. So it is not emphasizing so much the distinctiveness of that group of individuals as a group of individuals, but rather the character that they bear. And that's the case here. So here is a distinction between the prophets and between the son. Because this group spoke for God. Now Christ is in himself. Not just what he says, but in himself. What God has to say to us. It's not just through him, it's in him. The son belongs to a completely different category. God's revelation is completely different in Christ. It's not that God takes up Christ and uses Christ to speak as he did through a Moses. Because Moses was not God. Moses was just conveying the words of God. They were inspired by the Spirit of God. But now God is speaking through one who is in himself, in character, the Son. The Son of God. One translation put it this way, or one, sorry, commentary put it this way. Were a friend to tell you that he had visited a certain church, this is no commentary, and that the preacher spoke in Latin. Now, I was going to say hands up if you got Latin at school, but that's going to show your age, Duncan. Um, I don't know, he did get Latin as well. There you go. And more modern people, we never got taught Latin, um, but maybe the school that Duncan went to was a bit more sophisticated anyway. Were a friend to tell you that he had visited a certain church and that the preacher spoke in Latin, you have no difficulty in understanding what he meant when he said spoke in Latin. You would know that that particular language marked his utterance. Such is the thought here. In son has reference to that which characterised God's revelation. So he speaks and it's Christ in view. The final and full revelation of God was not just words that came through Christ, but the sending of Christ himself, who is the word. This is the fullness of God's revelation of himself. Christ himself. So you can learn what God is by looking and listening and watching Christ. John 1 verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, that is Jesus the Son, has explained, has expounded, exegeted him as the word. Who? God the Father. Christ has fully exegeted, explained in detail the Father. Because in the prophets, God gave predictions and foreshadowings. But in his son, you have the substance of all of these foreshadowings and predictions. So the idea is that God has spoken not just in what Christ said, but who Christ and what Christ is. 
Well, what's so special then about the Son? That's really what he goes on to say. So this is going to be the short introduction to the whole book, that the Son is special. And he is worthy of your full attention. That's what the book is. He, you don't need to turn away back from him. There is a sufficiency in him. There is a supremacy in him. That if you allow yourself and push yourself, I should say, not allow yourself, don't be passive, but if you actively pursue the knowledge of Christ, you will find in him a sufficiency for life that nothing else can provide. That's the Hebrew epistle. And so there are seven statements. Now don't panic. There are seven statements here about the supremacy of Christ. The truth of the matter is you could take a Bible class on each one of them. Um, but I'm just going to mention them because they will be developed as we go through the epistle. So number one, very quickly. It says in, in verse 2, so this is the son. Remember, this is this big sentence. So this is um, the things that characterize the son, that make him so special. <clears throat> the things that characterize God's revelation in the son that make him so special. Number one, he's the heir of all things. He hath been appointed, whom he hath appointed, heir of all things. Who is appointed? Well, God has appointed who? The Son, heir of all things. Now, when you think about this, many commentators take you back to Psalm 2, and rightly so. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's Christ. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so you have references to resurrection, Ask of me and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the inheritance. He's been appointed heir of all things. So it's a title of dignity. He's got the supreme place in the whole of God's mighty universe. And his exaltation to that present place is not really the bestowal of some new dignity, but rather him re-entering into what is his rightful place. And so it is. It's interesting in Psalm 89 verse 27, it says, Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Now that is not a chronological term of being born first. It's a term of legal right and priority. Romans 11, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Remember this, Christ is supreme. He's the heir of all things. All things have been given into his hand. Secondly, he's the creator of all things. It says, by whom also he made the worlds. Now the worlds there, it's really the idea of ages in context. F.F. Bruce, another great quote, Jeremy likes, F.F. Bruce, we're rolling them out tonight, refers to the whole created universe of space and time. <coughs> the whole created universe of space and time. So he is the agent by whom God made the ages and everything within them. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over time and Lord over everything within time. He created it. John tells us that in chapter 1, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, for of him and through him and to him are all things. I'm going to quote you Stephen Hawking, who says this in his brief history of time, which is not a brief history of anything. Um, It says that our galaxy is just an average-sized galaxy, apparently. And it takes 100,000 light years to cross which he reckons means if we were measuring it in miles, would be 600 trillion miles. Modern telescopes, according to Stephen Hawking, can see about 100,000 million galaxies. Remember, ours is just an average size one. That is about 600 trillion miles across. One. But we can see from Earth not just one galaxy or a hundred galaxies or a million galaxies, but a hundred thousand million galaxies. And each galaxy, they reckon, contains 100,000 million stars. So already your mind is gone when you try to What is that? How can you, I mean, how can you possibly begin to even picture what that means? The average, this is Stephen Hawking, the average distance between each of these galaxies is 3 million light years. So there's 100,000 million galaxies that we know about, and they're not even close together. Some estimate that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away, but we just don't know. We have no idea. Now, Stephen Hawking is not a Christian, and he is just, I think, guessing from the information he has some of that information he provides. Do you know this? That the Bible says that Jesus Christ, the Son, spoke all of that into being. He spoke it into being. He spoke and it was done. And it wasn't just done in chaos, it was done in the perfection of the immensity of the universe that is beyond our capacity to even begin to think about. So when we think about the immensity of all that's out there, And then we think about the fact that God's focus is right down into this little world. A tiny, tiny, minuscule speck, even within our own galaxy. How can that be? How can that even be? Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. And it's to this earth that he came. And so it's no wonder that the writer of the Hebrews is saying, hold on a minute, you want to go back to a temple built out of stone with men's hands. And you want and think it's better to 
kill animals and put the blood of animals down an altar and you think it's better to turn away from Christ towards man-made objects that appeal to the physical senses and you're turning away from the one who made the worlds, who made the ages, who's beyond time, who is glorious beyond description. It doesn't even make sense. But then he goes on and he says this, that the one who made the ages, the one who made the worlds, the one who spoke everything into being, he is also the brightness of his glory. He's the radiance of glory is the idea. Now the idea is just this, if you picture, and you can't really, but if you think about the sun, and you think about the light that we enjoy that comes from the sun, the rays of the sun, which displays the brightness of the sun, God lets his glory issue from himself. So that here upon earth there was one born that was God himself. The very essence of what is being radiated arrived here and displayed the brightness of of God himself and the brightness of where he came from and who he came from. It was the outshining, the radiance of glory. Athanasius, who's been dead a long time, One of the early church fathers said this, Who does not see that the brightness cannot be separated from the light, but it is by nature proper to it and coexistent with it and is not produced after it? He's saying the brightness can't be separated from the light itself. The brightness of his glory in Christ cannot be separated from the glory itself. And then he goes on and he's basically saying that the the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, is the brightness of God's essence manifested to men. Then fourthly, he says, he's also the express image of his person. Now the Greek word there refers to an engraved character or impression made by a die or by a seal, for example, on a coin. And the principal idea is of exact correspondence. So the correspondence, I'm quoting now, not only involves, or involves not only an identity of the essence of the Son with that of the Father, but more particularly a true and trustworthy revelation or representation of the Father by the Son. Put in simple words, the Lord Jesus said this, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You see how the Lord Jesus can take a complex thing and just with one sentence make it simple. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the express, exact representation and essence of the Father. One writer said, We never could have understood the God who dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see unless Jesus came to earth as a man and revealed him. He revealed him as a man. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, bodily. Christ was not only God manifest, he was God in essence. He didn't just display God. He manifested who he essentially is. Fifthly, He upholds all things by the word of his person. He didn't just make it and leave it. 
And this it doesn't just simply mean the idea of sustain. It means the idea of active, purposeful control. Because this world is heading in a direction and Christ has his hand at the tiller. That's the idea. So this means that the Lord Jesus is continually upholding all things in the universe by the word of his power. You know what would happen if he didn't? The whole thing would disintegrate. That's what would happen. He's the cohesion of the universe. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 17. In him all things hold together. In him all things consist. He's the glue of the universe just by being who he is. And that is why the universe is a cosmos and not chaos. It's a structured order and it's not chaotic. Why is that? Because of Christ. And because Christ is, there is cosmos and not chaos. Psalmist in Psalm 148 verse 8 says, if you read it, that every single raindrop Every single flake of snow and gust of wind and bolt of lightning are obeying God's commands. Some people shy away at the idea of God being sovereign and control and authoritative. This whole universe is under his control. He speaks and it's made. His word upholds everything. His presence is the means by which all things consist. The whole thing would just fail to function apart from his control. He controls the whole thing. In fact, Psalm 139 verse 16 says he also controls the length of our life. It says that he determines the number of days that every one of us will live. It's interesting, isn't it? We take God out of our lives, really, and we we see God as being out there and we ask him to come in here at times, but we forget he's, he's in here all the time. In him we live and move and have our being, <coughs> Paul said to the Athenians. Then verse 6. And this is where the gospel comes in. Because it says that he, sorry, verse 3, number 6, and the express image of his person, he upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. Here it comes. You see, he's not just (laughs) talking about creation, which is marvellous. He says, I want to to tell you about his, his work of purification. You're taken up with purification in that Old Testament sacrificial system and, uh, and all the washing and all the, the, the ceremonies that went round about life as a Jew. But there's a purification that is far greater than all of those purifications. And rather be taken up with the symbol and with the anticipation of purification as demonstrated in hand washing and all, go to the reality and substance which is Christ. He has made purification. I noted down my notes here, he left the glory of heaven. He took on the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, that the death of a cross in Philippians chapter 2. And by so doing, has purified us from our sins. 
And that, by the way, is another aorist tense which indicates it's done. Woost again says this, that the participle is in the middle voice which represents the person as either acting upon himself or in his own interest. Thus, when the Son of God made purification of sins, he did so by himself. He acted upon himself, offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins. This is expanded in chapter 10, and we'll not go into it just now. Think about this. In order to create the universe, what do you have to do? He spoke. So when you think about the vastness of what we've been trying to imagine and you think about all of that and you think about what it must have taken to bring that into being and then hold it together. You think of unspeakable power. You think of incomprehensible size. (laughs) In order to maintain and to guide that universe along his purpose what did he have to do what does he do he speaks he upholds all things by the word of his power in order to deal with your sin and my sin what did he have to do he had to come here and die so how big a deal is our sin is it a bigger deal than the whole cohesion of the universe? Yes, it is. He could not speak and deal with our sin. It couldn't be done. Sin is something that required something different. So there's no such thing as insignificant sin. If you think about it, there cannot be. Because then the blood of Christ would be insignificant. It's staggering to think. That's why Isaac Watts said, This love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And then lastly, the supremacy of Christ is seen not only in the magnificence of his sacrifice and necessity of it, which is developed in the book, but also the triumph of his victory. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Why go back to this old religious system? Christ is risen. Christ has ascended. Christ has been received into glory. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The priests weren't allowed to sit in the holy place, nor the high priest. In the holiest of all, there were no seats in the tabernacle. It's often been pointed out. There wasn't a bench. There wasn't a sofa. There was nothing. You couldn't, you weren't meant to sit down. The priest's work was never done. That's why. You always had to be standing. Always had to be working. Why? Because the sacrifices had to be continually offered. But when Christ's sacrifice was made, when he made purification for sin, it was a sufficient sacrifice to pay the price of sin. And so he symbolizes that sufficiency by sitting down. The work is done. Sacrificially, the work is done. Because he offered himself once for our sins. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remembering just this, that 
in the Bible very often human language and the human body is often attributed to God to give us an understanding of the symbolism. Christ went and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see, the superiority of Christ is amazing. Sevenfold statement. And now the writer to the Hebrews is going to get into all of these things in some detail, and so are we. And we're going to see that Christ, next time, is greater than the angels. Greater than the angels. Trust that God will bless his work as we've thought about it.